Hello again, friends. Welcome to our Life with Breath expert series. Today we have an amazing mentor of myself and a mentor to many human beings who is an authentic practitioner of deep meditation practice. We have the amazing Jonathan Faust with us. Welcome. Hello again, friends. And as we always begin these hours, let's take a little time to just connect with our breath, calm the nervous system, open the mind, open the heart, and then we can fully receive the information from our guest. So if you can, just let your eyes close. Release and relax your low jaw, your mouth. Let go of any tension you might be aware of around the shoulders, upper chest. And then shift your mental awareness in a relaxed way to the ingoing flow of energy coming in and out through your nostrils. As you begin to breathe slower, if your breath could speak to you in this moment, right now, what is it offering you? You might notice that the pace of your breath is closely linked to the pace of the movie you're watching in your mind. And in that movie, you are the star, you are the director, and you are the audience. For those of you familiar with the ocean sounding breath, the Ujjayi breathing technique, maybe bringing up a sound in the throat to anchor the mind, to tether the mind in the beauty of your heart, the beauty of your spine. Just allow a few brief moments of introversion. And as you slow that inhale, settle the Steady the mental activity. And as you lengthen that exhale, release any old tension or distractions that might be inhibiting the mind's ability to focus. this is comfortable for you and you would enjoy maybe a little deeper experience, I invite you to hold the breath in and out for a couple seconds after the inhale is complete and after the exhale is complete. And then for the last minute, maybe breathing a little slower. Maybe allowing 
a little longer breath retention after the inhale is complete and allow that expansiveness to move through any parts of the mind where we sense contraction or aversion. Choosing to learn our life lessons through authenticity and gratitude and love. Jonathan, do you want to take it from here? Sure. Let's continue the meditation. We'll shift to a master meditation teacher. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> so we'll take a few minutes now. You might like to suspend all control of your breath now. And feel the breath absolutely unrestricted and free-flowing. And you might notice where you feel the breath the most predominant. And for these next few moments, since if you can just simply track what the breath feels like on the inside. And is it possible to, to feel your breath, but also to be aware of the periphery, the fact that you are aware of your breath? As the meditation master Thich Nhat Hanh offers, as I breathe in, I'm aware of breathing in. As I breathe out, I'm aware of breathing out. And you might notice as you feel the breath in the foreground, you might notice if it's possible to expand your awareness to the background, aware of everything that's moving and shifting and changing and sensing what some traditions call taking the seat of the witness, non-judging, non-preferential awareness allowing things to be just as they are. And in this final minute, you might inquire, is there anything right now that could soften or relax or let go? And is there anything that could soften, relax, or let go even more? Now you might very gently, again, sense the breath from the inside. And, and notice what happens if you lengthen the breath just a little bit softening on the out-breath, and just noting the quality of presence, noting what may have shifted in these last minutes of turning your awareness inward. And then you might, in your own time with your eyes closed, let your head drift a little bit to the left and the right, just sensing the movement from the inside. You might like to reach your arms up overhead. One of my favorite state-changing practices is to imagine you're in a TV commercial, smiling like they do when they wake up in the morning. <laughs> love it, love it. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. <laughs> I love it, love it. <laughs>
That was great. Thank you so much for taking that baton and running so skillfully. Well, you know, it just reminded me so much of our, you know, our years in the ashram of, you know, all the different breathing techniques, you know, we used and how profound they are for shifting our states. That's juicy. You know, for me, about 25 years ago when we first met, I, I had no awareness about movement or focusing the mind or, or controlling my breath and, and being kind of an energy junkie. The first thing I noticed about the breath was that it, it brought me into my body right away. Like I was in this present moment, maybe not in the best mental state, but I was at least feeling like I was getting somewhere if there's any place even to go. But it felt like improvement from where I was prior to that in my life. When you first got started, I mean, your history goes way back. When you first got started in the ashram, were you attracted immediately to meditation? Because I've seen you do asana before and you can rip. <laughs> but were you attracted immediately to the mind? I was. My my initial attraction was meditation. I, You know, when I moved into the ashram, I think I just finished up. I was in the Peace Corps, and I just stumbled in for the day, you know, stayed for 24 years. But I remember being so embodied, you know, that I realized that the first 25 years of my life, I was pretty convinced the only reason I had a body was to make my head portable, you know. And then realizing like the body's the doorway, you know, and and the breath is the doorway. And I learned uh, when I was 15, I was raised a Quaker. So, uh, you know, the, the Quakers talk about the still small voice within. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting, but I never got the technology of how to tap into that. Mm -hmm. And then I learned transcendental meditation when I was 15. It was like mm -hmm. from from the first moment, it was like, I'm gonna be doing this for the rest of my life and so far. You know, I have. So my attraction was meditation, but then the discovery of, of of asana, you know, of like purifying the body and strengthening the body mindfully. But then the, doing pranayam and realizing, oh my gosh, you know, how I breathe is how I feel. And of course, back in those days, we really pushed the limits, you know, um, doing lots of, lots of yeah. just pretty insane you know, pranayam techniques. I remember the first, I, I just felt, even though I, I didn't know where I was going, but I had complete trust in, in you to guide this 10 day retreat. And there, and the, and the part that trusted it was much more powerful than the part that didn't know where I was going. And the, and just your whole thing resonated with me. Just the authenticity, the depth of practice, the communication of how to teach and hold space for others. And it just, you know, my whole thing was I would look up at you and I'd be like, maybe someday if I'm really lucky and work hard, I can do this. That was my take on that. Wow. That's very, that's very sweet. You know, I think, you know, there's a definition that I like of your, your path or your Dharma, you know, the word mm -hmm. Dharma is thrown around a lot and, you know, it can mean like eternal truth, but it also can mean path. And, and the definition I like is your personal path or your personal Dharma is what you can't not do, you know? And for me, like when I when I had that you know, that, that initial experience of like this, there's something here about, about coming home and, mm -hmm. and being able to be in a safe and sacred space to do the practices um, was so, so, um, it was just such a blessing and such a gift. And, and I, and I just, and I know how, you know, the power of the resonance for you, you know, very much a shared 
a shared space of, of inquiry. Well, I, you know, I was there to learn, but I was also watching you like a hawk and your body language. And there would be, you know, at the end of a session, there'd be 20 people that wanted to talk to you. And you would look every person in the eye like this was the only person on the planet. And you would patiently have interaction with them. And then the next person, you would look them directly in the eye as if they were the only person on the earth. And that level of authenticity and depth and just like making you feel so amazing. I, I'll never forget watching you interact with large groups. Wow. Wow. That's, that's so kind uh, to thank you for that, for that reflection. You know, for me, I think I was just so feeling so blessed to be able to, to, to share in these practices. We were sharing before the podcast, a, a mutual friend of ours, old flea bitten ashramite who, uh, who once said that his goal was to practice deeply and share freely. And I when, when he told me that I thought I am so taking that phrase. And um, and it's it's just the best game in town, you know. It really is the best game in town when when we're around like-minded people who want the same thing. Uh, it's it's as we used to say back in those days, company is stronger than willpower, Strong and it really drive. really did make a difference. So you're an accomplished musician, writer, meditation teacher. You've worked all over the world. Is there one thing that people don't know about? I mean, I, I know something about you that maybe others don't know. You're the world's greatest stand-up comedian. <laughs> oh, I and so that, wish. <laughs> I, I just think that, like, I get it. The work is serious. You can go to any level you, you choose to go. But at the same time, it doesn't always have to be white knuckle, you know, with your foot on the brake and you've got the wheels drip so tight and you have to get it you know you gave us freedom to have our own experience you know um i'm just reminded of how um the in the ashram the kripalo yoga ashram the mm -hmm. it was named after swami kripalo and for those who are not familiar with him he was the real deal he he uh, <clears throat> he died before just before i moved in um but he was, uh, you know, someone who practiced meditation for, you know, I think it was 10 hours a day. He was in silence for 19 years. Mm -hmm. And and he had this one phrase that I, again, I heard this, I thought, I am like etching that on the inside of my eyelids. He said, he said, seriousness is a crime in the court of God. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and that's when I just thought we have to be able to, we got to take this lightly, you know? Um, because practice is so much around paradox, you know, and, you know, we, we try so hard and get so grim and ultimately it's about letting go and, and integrating all this stuff is really all we can do. All we can really do is laugh. I think ultimately, you know, ultimately. Where did you get that sense of humor? Is that from your mom, your dad? Like, would you pick, were you born like that, or is it something you developed? I mean, it was the only way I. It was the only way I could get attention. <laughs> in in my in my household, and my father was just killer. Uh, he had such a subtle wit. He would like, he would just do these little side comments and wait to see if you'd catch it. And um, <sighs> I, you know, and I remember he would he would have people come up to him two days later and say, "Hey." I just, I just realized what you said. I got, I want you to know I got it, you know? So that was my way of getting attention. And, um, but also, you know, humor is a way that it just brings us all together. You know, when, when, a, when a group laughs together, there's such a sense of, you know, harmony. And, and so the, you know, the shadow side was, you know, I would sort of in my, my family with my own family dysfunction, I would try to use humor to, you know, to kind of like heal things, which, Maybe it wasn't the most skillful thing, but it's, it's what I did and what I tried. It worked. No, it's working. great. I'm I'm really glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah. 
and I can, I, I think about when I was younger, uh, you know, there, there really wasn't a word called stress. There was either de-stress or distress. It was D-I or D-E. And it was, you had that in front of stress. And then somewhere about 25 years ago, we threw out the D-I or the D-E and now it's just stress. And you can't even really find online a lot of information about de-stress. It's always distress or stress. The one tool that I, that I see that crosses lines that, that works for everyone is meditation. How can we, how can we access the gifts of meditation with the languaging that we have today, which so much of it is, it's a loaded magnetic frequency. It really is. You know, my, my dad um, served in World War II, <clears throat> wounded twice, missing in action. Um, mm. Just, I mean, the stuff he saw um, um, was really horrendous. When he came back, no acknowledgement you know it was just get back to work and when you think about how the refinement we the understanding we have now around post-traumatic stress disorder and yeah. and the technologies that we are uh we're beginning to uncover you know as jean houston talked she back in like in the 70s she said we will have the discovery of ancient future technologies and i thought that sounds exciting but what the heck is that and you know what it is right. it's the work you're doing you know, here are these these mm -hmm. ancient technologies of of learning how to regulate, you know, through breath, learning how to, you know, uh, learning how to kind of subdue the amygdala and stimulate the prefrontal cortex. You know, all this stuff that we now have access to is it's extraordinary. Um, I do a lot of work uh, with with CEOs, um, you know, because I'm here in D.C. Um, my wife and I have done multiple presentations for the Senate in the, um, the House of Representatives. Um, I did a training for the D.C. Superior Court Justices. And what I find so interesting now is that people are really beginning to understand the consequences of stress and, and are very open, more open than ever, into learning, learning how to work with it. So it's a very interesting thing, you know. We're it's getting so much more um, nuanced as we go along here. It's really, really quite exciting. So I'm aware you're uh, you're frozen right now on my screen, or you're being very, very still and very meditative. <laughs> so I'll just pause for a moment, see how our connection is. Um, so it's me. Uh, it looks like we've lost Ed. <laughs> so I may be the show here. Uh, so until Ed comes back, uh, I can talk a little bit more around, uh, or maybe uh, there are a couple things around breath and meditation that I thought I might share. Um, I learned mantra meditation. Um, of course, we did a lot of breath as, as the... Uh, in the form of yoga as well. But I then became very influenced by working with, um, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, mindfulness meditation, which uses breath kind of as the primary anchor. Uh, of course, other breaths, uh, I mean, other techniques are entirely possible. You can use sound as an, as an anchor, as a way of coming back. You can use the, the feeling tone in your body as a way of coming back. But primarily, the breath becomes your doorway to really open and feel what's present. And so there are a couple of ways you can work with the breath. And uh, maybe until, uh, until Ed comes back to join me, I can tell you a little bit about that. You may have, you may have explored how manipulating your breath can have very, very profound effect. You know, when you, when you slow down the breath, you begin to calm the nervous system. And as they say, the slower you go, the more you notice. 
So consciously slowing down your breath can be a very powerful way to kind of gather your attention. And in that way of, of, of exploring mindfulness meditation, you can use the breath as your way of coming back. In the Buddhist tradition, the breath is referred to as, um, in Pali, the original language of the Buddha, as anapanasati. The word anapana means breath. The word sati means remember. And that becomes a very critical, a critical word in meditation. It's about remembering the breath, but it also means remembering the here and now. And here's Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Wendy was here. Wendy's not here. <laughs> so there he is. I'll just kind of go on just for a moment as uh, as Ed swings back online. Ed, you're muted right now. And um, and there he is. Welcome back, Ed. I was just talking about um, about breath as a as the primary tool for meditation, um, and moving from control of the breath to observation of the breath. Are you back online? Uh, I can't can't hear you. No no sound from you. Not not yet. And you're muted now, and now you're not muted. And nope, there goes Ed. <laughs> so we'll see. Rebooting the Wi-Fi. So uh, muted, and uh, now it looks like you're muted, and now you're unmuted. No sound. So we're... Uh, bit of a blip. Uh, Ed, you can you can hear me okay? I don't so you can't so you can't hear me. You can hear me. Uh, if we're running live, would you like me to just to carry on until you figure out what's going on for you? Yeah, this seems to be uh, So here we get to see <clears throat> stress in action. And we can watch the powerful way that Ed manages his stress by being aware of his breath <laughs> and surrendering to the here and now. technical glitches hey there you are that was amazing so you're uh you're you're freezing a little bit again but um shall we carry on i would love that yeah so wh while you're away i was talking a little bit about um about using breath uh as an anchor in meditation talking about <clears throat> what's referred to as anapanasati, which is really basically remembering the breath and how and how powerful that can be. Whew. And it works on the fly too. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. When you're uh, leading the Monday night experiences online, you know, a few years ago, there really wasn't any online experiences. 
It was all face-to-face, retreat-centered, one-on-ones. And you seem to make a seamless transition in the holding space for folks uh, on your Monday night programs. It's so powerful. And, and kudos to you because you made that step from face-to-face to virtual. It, I don't know how it was for you, but for the audience, amazing. You know, it was it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a leap, but I'm so glad that I've had so many years of experience of giving live talks so that I could just sort of imagine people. You know, that, that Monday night class was uh, was a pretty good sized uh, group and I would just sort of imagine them there. And um, and it's, it's funny, you know, since things have gone online and we, we lead a lot of meditation retreats as well. You know, paradoxically, I'm sure you found this as well, that um, it's more accessible for people now. Um, you know, on our retreats, they're now they're now international retreats. We have people from all over the world and lots of people who are taking care of elderly parents or who are of disabilities who can now fully participate. So that really has been kind of the golden gift, you know, through the whole this whole process with the pandemic. Yeah, you know, finding the silver lining in distress or adversion, you know, knowing that there's always a sliver of light somewhere in that, in that, whatever that is, and just hanging in there with the experience, you know, one breath at a time and, you know, trusting our experience. It seems like it's almost like we're, We've lost our ability to trust ourselves and folks around us. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's a beautiful sort of concept in in practice that's called verified trust or verified faith. Mm -hmm. You know, that when when we hit a rough spot and we, we kind of like, we, we pause and we kind of refresh and you know, the, I sometimes when when I hit a rough thing, I sometimes try to remember that question: What could be great about this? And just that one question, like, what could be great about this, is a reframe. You know, yeah. and and I yeah. think w- what happens for me is like I be, begun to see that I used to think that in my meditation practice that it was about getting to peace. You know, and so whenever I hit any of those five mental states of you know, of, of aversion or craving or restlessness or worry or sloth and torpor or doubt. It'd be like, I got to burn through that state to get back to peace. And I finally realized manage, going through those states is the practice, you know, right. managing managing those, those challenges as they arise. That's what the practice is all about. And I think the verified tra- trust or verified faith comes when we when we stay, when we stay with it, we build that sense of resilience. Is this something that, that folks are born with? Is it something that's cultivated through discipline or is it somewhat of a middle path? It's a, wow, that's such a great question, you know, because, you know, what I find, and I think, you know, again, when I think back to our roots, you know, back, back in the ashram days, we were very into willful practice, you know, Willful practice was, you know, was uh, the name of the game, you know, going into very strong asana, pushing the limits with pranayama and really using a lot of concentration. And at the same time, we did some very powerful surrender practices as well, you know, with the the posture flows and things like that. Mm -hmm. But, But what I find is that it's really about finding that balance. Now, there's a story of um, someone who goes to their meditation teacher and says, uh, by the way, I just want you to know I quit. And the, and the teacher says, I'm curious why. And she says, well, you're so inconsistent. You know, you're telling one person to sit up straighter and then the next person comes up, you're telling them to go for more walks and have tea. You know, I can't stand how, uh, how um, undependable you are. <laughs> Right. And the teacher smiles and says, well, what I'm really teaching is, is the middle way. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they need to sit up straighter. And other mm-hmm. people need to learn how to soften. And, and my thing is, we have that inner knowing, you know, that, that self-regulatory thing. When we realize, like, you know what, I'm being too grim. 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I have to find what are the tools that are going to help me to soften and trust more. And then we also have the inner knowing of like, you know what? I could sit up a little straighter. You know? mm-hmm. I could benefit from, from some discipline here. And, you know, that that middle way, it's a, it's a constantly moving target. Right. Which is why, you know, I, I think it all comes down to two questions, which is what exactly is happening right now? And how does this moment want me to be with it? You know, and then to listen really deeply. You know, I listen to your phrasing, your logistics, the words. How important is it to monitor the phrasing that we're using internally, moment by moment, to improve our our, our mental communication skills? As a, as a teacher or as a... I just look at the fact that sometimes we just let the mind just be like a run-on sentence and we don't really pay attention to the words, the inflection, what the words might mean, and we're just letting the mind do its thing. And then there's the other way of where on the other end of the seesaw where we're looking at every syllable and how does that vibrate uh, in my mind. And there's this, I think there's a space in between based on our our level of interest at any given moment where we either monitor the mind and or we don't monitor the mind and we just observe and witness. Yeah. Well, to, to quote again, Swami Kripalu, uh, he had a great line. He said, consider the next thing you're about to say and ask mm-hmm. yourself if it's an improvement on silence. Yeah. Yeah. And that slows me down really, really fast. You know, yeah. and I certainly notice that for myself is like when, you know, being just being mindful of speech, you know, that when I'm when I'm speaking from a place of stress and when I'm speaking from a place of ease, you know, and that's where I love that thing around. It's like the thing about mindfulness is this is being aware of what's happening as it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. the first part of the definition. And the second part of the definition is to be aware of your relationship to what's happening. Right. And to right. me, like, that's just so, it's so exquisite, you know, because that's, that's where we're, we're self-monitoring, you know, when we can realize like, oh, I'm, my actions are coming, there's some strain here, there's some grasping, or there's some aversion. And that, that's well, where that self-regulatory thing comes in. Yeah, you know, I, I've noticed you through the years and, one of the things I, I really appreciate is your efficiency. You know, there's nothing wasted. Nothing needs to be added. There's no extra steps. And there's a conservative approach to the energy where we're not just spewing energy out or, you know, just to be heard. And I, I think that, it, that either you're efficient in your life and physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or, or you're not efficient. And when I, when I see you, uh, run a program there's an economy or an efficiency to the energy used that on the other end of the seesaw immediately creates more self-awareness that's cool that's cool you know it it said like there there are two basic styles in 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 guiding one one is directive Mm -hmm. you know which is like close your eyes Mm -hmm. and the other one is invitational which is like if you if you uh, if you like, yeah. or if it feels right, close your eyes. Mm-hmm. And I hate being told what to do. Right. Uh, I just I just hate it. So my style is a hundred percent invitational, and yeah. and uh, and and you know people make fun of that sometimes. You know where you know, I, I've heard some pretty intense uh, pretty intense uh, um, skits done on my on my style of leading, but. Uh, my my um, my sense is like we we have an invitation. We move in, and I'm I'm very informed by you know while my roots are in yoga, um, I've been very influenced by you know by Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology, and I have no reason to call myself you know a, a Buddhist or a yogi or whatever. But but allegedly, and all of this, everything the Buddha said is allegedly because. It wasn't written down till generations later, but he allegedly said on his on his deathbed, 
be a light unto yourself. Do not look for teachers. Do not look for books. Do not look for scripture to tell you what is true. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and he said, no one is going to save you. You have to take responsibility for your own awakening, if you will. Mm -hmm. When I first heard that, it was like, oh, man, I was really hoping someone would save me. <laughs> um, but it's like we have to take responsibility. And, and that's where I think like that, that invitational style is it's so, so powerful because with all that you are offering out into the world, you know, you're offering it freely and then people really have to try it on for themselves. And um, I find that so powerful. You've been involved in a lot of research in regards to meditation, meditation practice and the gifts of the practice. What is one thing in the research that's coming out today that you knew intuitively 30 some years ago? Wow, what a great question. What a great question. In essence, uh, it works. <laughs> you just know it. Yeah, you just know it. It's it's it. There's just a resonance. It's like you know when when you it's um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, when someone experiences the truth, they'll never forget it. They'll try but they'll never forget it. And, and what I love about all the years of, you know, being in the ashram and teaching and the however many decades it's been since then, you know, I find that when, when, when we create these experiences where people can come into an authentic experience of themselves, that's when they say, oh, now I get what my rabbi was talking about, you know, or like, oh, so that's what that, that's what that teaching of, of Christ is all about. You know, it's uh, it's it's like that that eternal sense of truth that we tap into, uh, that that I find it's so thrilling, mm. and so it's really it's given me a lot of confidence, you know, to be able to go in and you know, in front of a bunch of executives and to offer these experiences, um, because I just I just have deep deep faith that they that they work, and and part of it, you know, I, I was contacted by the. Um, um, the National Security Council to do some uh, to do a presentation, and um, Congratulations. this is when uh, Lieutenant General uh, McMaster was running it um, for the two weeks he was in charge, um, and uh, so they said, "Well, um, Lieutenant General McMaster signs off on on all the training, so he wants a one pager from you." So I thought, "Oh my God, I got to put together a one pager for a Lieutenant General, a General." And so I thought, well, let me, well, let me just see what the military has done. And so I did a bunch of, you know, just Googling for research. I was blown away by how much research has been done by the government on the effect of mindfulness and troop cohesion and leadership. And so my one pager was like, well, you might want to check out <laughs> these articles, you know, and it was, you know, it was instantly approved. So, Congratulations. you know, Having the science, that, that's why this practice is being underwritten by insurance companies. It's why it's being taught in the schools, because now we have this evidence-based proof that, that these practices will not only uh, help you regulate your nervous system, but they'll give you more emotional equilibrium, more mental clarity, your sense of intuition gets heightened. It really does as a Maharishi Mahesh Yogi had this one phrase, it's so cliche, and I, I just keep coming back to it. It's so corny. He would, just, he would say, water the root and enjoy the fruit. And it's really true. It's really true. Yeah, I truly believe that we are all farmers in the deepest sense of the word, where we're all leaving seeds behind us, and we're just trying to leave a, you know, a, a better field than how we found it. And, you know, I believe meditation practice is, is one of the really roots where we can have an appreciation that it's really not all about us. It's kind of like the bounty of the work that we're putting out there. And, you know, one of the great things that I find about meditation is, you know, when everything's going well in life and you're having a great day, it's very easy to focus your attention. We're very habit-driven organisms. 
when we're having those rainy days, those days that we would prefer not be involved in, where we actually have the greatest opportunity to learn when the sun's not out. But I, I, I notice meditation gives us the ability to pull ourselves back to neutral on the days that we would classically in our ego say that would be unpleasant or unfruitful. What is your experience with that? Yeah. Well, one of the jokes I tell is how when you meditate, you'll feel better. And most people do. But you'll also feel your depression better, your sadness better, your anger better. You know, you feel everything better. And I think what happens for many people is they start off with a meditation practice and you kind of pick the low hanging fruit. You know, you kind of realize like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I feel so much better. I can't believe I was holding on to that issue. And then what happens is when you practice, and, and again, when you think of like that, that seat of the witness, non-judging awareness, like non-preferential awareness, what happens as you go deeper into your practice is that everything undigested in your life, everything unfelt and unseen in your life is going to make its way into center stage. So, so again, um, like, boy, I keep going back to Swami Kripalu. He had some great stuff, but he said most people stop practicing precisely because it's working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so meditation has this great way of self-regulation, you know? But also, it's, it can be a, it's also a practice of, of transformation, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and that's where, where the, the tools of practice uh, become very, very powerful. Like, how do you work with physical pain? How do you work with emotional turmoil? How do you work with mental agitation? Um, so the model that, one of the mindfulness models that I love um, is the practice is called RAIN, R-A-I-N. Yeah. Where you, rec you recognize what's presenting, you name it. And sometimes naming it, as they say in the shamanic traditions, you know, if you can name a fear, you take his power away. I'm not sure you take it all away, but you do sort of sever your identification with it. The A is to ask, can I, can I allow this? Sometimes you can't, but if you can in meditation, okay, let me make room for this physical pain or this emotional trauma or emotional turmoil. If you can, then you move into the I, which is to investigate. Mm -hmm. So where do I feel that inside? What am I believing about this? Mm -hmm. And then the N is you, whatever you find, you explore what it's like to nurture that with some kind of kindness or compassion or, or loving awareness. And this is where meditation becomes really powerful for a kind of unwinding the knots that, that show up in life. Um, well said. It's juicy well, stuff. It's really juicy stuff. So, you know, when I hear you speak and I think of meditation, <clears throat> People think of the brain and we think of thought forms and uh, cognition. What I'm hearing today is that meditation is a feeling experience more than a classical stop these thoughts or I don't want to go into these words. It's about feeling. Very much feeling, and it gets it gets so overlooked. Uh, here's a model that I really like. I, any given moment, the very very foundation of what you're aware of is energy. It's just it's just undifferentiated undifferentiated energy. You know, it's you know prana, chi, ki, holy spirit, whatever you want to call it. And then then what happens is, in a flash, before you're even aware of it, your mind classifies that sensation is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right. And then without even being aware of it, you go into a mental reactivity. Mm -hmm. oh, I really, oh, I really like this. Oh, this is terrible. This reminds me of that time when I was X, Y, Z. So then, then you're caught in the thoughts. If you're not aware of your thoughts and you think the same thought a thousand times, it calcifies into a belief. And if you're not aware of your beliefs, they become your habits. And if you're not aware of your habits, they form your character. And if you're not aware of your character, that becomes your destiny. So that's why in meditation, you come back to the breath. You come back to the, you come back to the here and now before that stuff proliferates. 
So you can pay attention. You can you can examine your beliefs. You can examine your habits. You can examine your thoughts. But you can also explore this feeling tone, which is incredibly rich. There's one meditation teacher. His name is Utejaniya. If you sit with him, the whole, it'll be like for a week. He doesn't tell you whether to do walking meditation or sitting meditation. You do that however you want. But what you do is 24-7, you pay attention to pleasant and unpleasant and the reaction in your mind. Mm -hmm. Really powerful. So you're, you're just noticing the feeling tone and then noticing how you're reacting to it. It's really quite, quite uh, revealing. So if I was under, going to undertake a meditation practice, what would be some of the steps that I would want to first look into to start a practice? Do I do it every day? Do I do it for an hour? Uh, do I focus on my breath? You know, what are the early steps for folks that just dip their toe into this communication skill? Yeah. Well, it's important to point out that uh, I love this book by Jason Siff called Unlearning Meditation. And he does one statement, which I thought, that's so screwed up. And then I realized, oh, my God, that's so true. He said, you can, he said, you can learn any meditation technique and find another tradition that will give you exactly the opposite instructions. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, in insight meditation, you close your eyes. If you study Tibetan meditation, you meditate with your eyes open. You know, in some traditions, you use a mantra. Other traditions, you use breath. Some traditions you use sound. So I think it's very important to look at the different traditions and kind of sense what resonates for you. Mm -hmm. But but in essence, I like to think of meditation as three stages. Mm -hmm. it, it, and think of it as focus, flow, and let go. So focus is concentration. And we all need concentration. You know, So the breath or sound or whatever it may be, training yourself to gather your attention in the here and now is very, very helpful. And then flow is that sense of like, of like really being the witness of your experience and noticing the stream of what's passing by. And then letting go is really just sensing, can I let things be as they are? So I think it's really helpful. There's some really great training, trainings available out there. Um, in fact, I'll just mention my, my wife, is, who's a meditation teacher, psychologist, kind of meditation rock star. What's uh, her Tara, name again? Uh, Tara Brock. Um, <laughs> she, has a, uh, she has a training, which is free, uh, that she does with Jack Kornfield, who's another meditation rock star. It's called The Power of Awareness. And it's a 40-day program you can do. It's about 10 to 15 minutes each, each day. It gives you a little bit of an overview and a little bit of practice. And many people have found that to be really, really helpful. It's really clean, kind of takes you through it. So for anyone interested, I would really recommend that as kind of a, as a way of kind of getting oriented. And this is the tradition of, um, of insight meditation, Beautiful. which is a, which is kind of a breath-based meditation. That'd be a great way to start. When I, uh, let my mind wander into my past. I remember one thing you said to me. I said, this is great here. I want to focus on a steady daily meditation practice. You know, what are some things I can do to be successful? And one of the things you said to me, I remember was put yourself in a position where you can be successful. So start out with X minutes a day where you know you can do it. So like, if, can you do five minutes a day? If you can do five minutes a day, that's a lot better than someone saying, I have to do 20 minutes a day and start to build stress around that time frame, And then you start to shut down. Exactly. Exactly. I like to think of it as the minimum effective dose. You know, <laughs> what's the smallest amount I can do to get the maximum benefit? It's and it's much burn. It's much better to do five minutes a day every day than 25 minutes on Sunday, you know? So when I do, I do my practice first thing, I just roll out of bed and I sit because if I don't do it first thing, then it may not get done. 
So that's important. But but again, you know, company is stronger than willpower. You know, um, mm -hmm. read this Forbes magazine article that said if you take your five best friends and you average out their income, it's probably your income. And when I read that, I thought, I, I need some new friends. <laughs> but the truth, but the point of the article is you resonate who you spend time with. Right. You know, who, who you hang out with is who you will resonate with. And and for anyone interested in meditation to, to find other people who are interested or just one person who's interested, that's going to spark you and help you to kind of stay, keep your practice, you know, alive and, and vibrant. Because... Um, because it will be challenging. This is not an easy, it's not an easy practice. Yeah. And I think folks being aware that when you do hit a wall, that is a wall of success. It's, it's not a wall of, it's not working out. Exactly. It's really kind of the fruit of your practice. It's taking right. you to, to yet another growth opportunity, really. And we are all such deep layered human beings. You could practice every day for the rest of your life and you'd still have stuff coming up for you you're we're so we're such a deeply layered organism i love the analogy that when we're when we're little kids we're these hard drives without virus protection oh, you know and so yeah. we're just we're just picking up you know our 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 our, our family of origins point of view all of those our culture all of that is sort of like just downloaded in our hard drive. And in many ways, meditation is sort of about defragging and, you know, and deconditioning your hard drive to get back to that original, you know, that original sense. And, and we get glimpses of it. You know, we get those glimpses of like those moments when you're, you're not wanting anything other than what's here. Um, you know, just those moments of peace. Those are powerful glimpses to have. And they're kind of what keeps us going. It really, you know, when we're young, we have all this energy, but we have super low awareness. And then as we get older, we have all this awareness, but heck, we don't have the energy anymore. So where's the space in between? Well, it begins meeting someone like you. And, and, and finding like-minded people. Yeah. When folks are looking for support, how do they get a hold of Jonathan Faust? Uh, well, I have a couple offerings. You know, I do a, I do a weekly class, um, and that's live streamed on Monday nights. But it's yes. also on on Facebook and YouTube and and all that good stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I do occasional I do occasional retreats. I'm actually I've been leading multiple week long retreats for many many years. I'm kind of stepping back from that now, mm -hmm. um, but I do offer some um, you know some like day long and half day retreats you know um, every year. So um, all that's available. I probably I must have about five hundred talks and guided meditations, and Wonderful. I also on, on Insight Timer I have some guided meditations. And for those who are interested in meditation, Insight Timer um, is an app and a website where you can uh, you can use it to time your own meditation. But there's there are tons and tons of guided meditations you can check out. So I do have some there uh, that that are uh, might be helpful. You know, meditation is a modern ancient medicine and it works folks. And if you're looking for a tribe or you're looking to deepen your practice, I suggest getting with Jonathan on Monday night uh, through the social media channels or reach out to his website. It's just a plethora of information that works. It's time tested, it's proven. And Jonathan has a certain way of holding space for you where you'll feel deeply loved, deeply supported, and deeply connected to parts of ourselves that sometimes we feel fragmented from or isolated from. He's the real deal. He's changed my life. He's changed thousands of people's lives for the better. It, this is 100%. It's going to work. You just have to open that window a little bit and let his voice flow into it, and you will feel love that you were born with as you came out of your mother. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. My heart is just full being around you for an hour. And I wish you and Tara every success along the way. Thank you so much, Ed. And, uh, and, and deep gratitude to you. You know, I, I feel so blessed to have 
have shared a lot of this wacky path with you and uh, and and you and Wendy are an inspiration as to how you are. You're just serving with such open hearts. So I'm it's a real so, pleasure to connect. Yeah, I'm so proud of you. You know, through all the adversity, this has not been easy. You know, you've had a lot of peaks, had a couple non-peaks, and you know what? Sometimes nice guys finish first. And congratulations <laughs> to you. Thank you. I, I feel so blessed. I really do. Hook up with Jonathan Faust, ladies and gentlemen. You will not be disappointed. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I look forward to continuing this conversation uh, sometime in the future. Great. Thanks so much. Blessings. Thank, thank you, brother.